So 1 John uh, chapter 4, and we're looking at um, this uh, section of 1 John dealing with love. We've talked about different tests that exist to help us understand whether or not we're in fellowship with God. There's a truth test, there's an obedience test, and there's a truth test. And we see each of these tests throughout 1 John to help us know whether or not we are in true relationship with God. So uh, we're in 1 John 4. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 14. Uh, but this, this whole section of 1 John that's dealing with the, the love test at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, uh, this, this whole section uh, has some, some kind of themes that, that tie in together and you know, he'll deal with something in one paragraph and the next section he'll deal with something else, but it kind of go back to what he just talked about as well. And so we're going to kind of pick out some different strands of what he's talking about, about different aspects of love. We're going to go back to verse 7 as we look at uh, this this passage this morning. And so I'm going to read verse 7 through verse 14, but we're looking at verses 11 through 14 this morning. If you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. 1 John, chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, John writes, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And we come to verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son be the Savior of the world. Uh, You may be seated. Heavenly Father, we would ask this morning, as we continue our our time of worship, that you would allow us to uh, think rightly about who you are and what your desire for our life is, and that you would give us the ability to worship you rightly. We pray that you would help us to engage in loving relationships with one another, uh, not in our own strength, but by the the work of your spirit in our lives. We pray that as we do so, we would testify to his presence in in us and you abiding in us, remaining with us, and and help others to be encouraged uh, to to seek after you. We pray for those uh, who need to experience your love and haven't yet, that their hearts would be soft toward you and that you would allow them to to, uh, place their trust in your son Jesus alone for their salvation and help us to be faithful declares of that message when both word and deed. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, yesterday, uh, my parents were up visiting, are up visiting from Texas, and we had the, the privilege of taking them around uh, Washington and showing them kind of some of the, the scenes of the town. It's kind of interesting, you know, right after the tornado, 
as we drove people around, we'd say things like, now you, you see this, this big pile of, of rubble. Now imagine this used to be a building or then it was, you see this, this open field. Okay, there used to be several buildings here. And, and yesterday, as we show them around Washington, it's interesting, the stage of recovery we've in, we, the, the stage of recovery that we're in, we said, okay, you see this rebuilt building? Okay, imagine that rebuilt building wasn't here, and then there used to be a building. You know, it's, it's kind of an interesting phase of the recovery we, we've entered into, and so it's kind of, kind of neat, right? Uh, two weeks ago, I was at Living Hope Community Church uh, preaching there, and and someone came up to me, a man, right before I was getting up to preach, and he said, uh, Daniel, I just wanted to say thank you. I want to say thank you. Uh, my sister's house was destroyed in the tornado, and you and your church have just been tremendous in, in showing the love of God to my sister and to the community. So I just, I just want to say thank you for your love. Now, I felt a little uncomfortable receiving that thanks, right? It's kind of like that time when you're a kid and your mom knows you've been invited to a birthday party. And so she, she goes to the store and she picks out a birthday present and she pays for the birthday present and she takes the present home and she wraps it and she gives it to you and she drives you to the birthday party. And as you get out of the car, she says, hey, don't forget this present. You, Oh yeah, thanks. And you take it. And then you walk to your friend and you give your friend the present and your friend says, hey, thank you. <laughs> you're like, well, you're welcome, but probably wasn't that involved in the whole process. You know? There are still times where Whitney and I will give a gift to someone and we'll watch them open it and the person receiving it and I will be surprised at the same time. (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. So as the person last two weeks ago said thank you to me, I had that feeling. I'm like, well, you're welcome. (laughs) But a little bit uncomfortable knowing that, first of all, I haven't been that involved personally in the tornado relief ministry since really the, the, the beginning of the year. And so many of you have done so much more than I have in terms of actually physically helping people that it was kind of weird to receive that thanks. But I think you would say, even those of you who have been very involved in this ministry and those of us who are involved in any ministry in which we're thanked in the church, would say, well, you're welcome. But even as we say you're welcome for the things that we've technically done, we recognize it hasn't really been us doing them. Last week, we talked about the source of love, love's source. And as we looked at at what John says here about the source of love, he says, let's love one another for love is from God. And he says, God is love. And so as you and I are in our community and are are doing things that that people perceive as loving and, and, and hopefully truly are, we say, you know, we recognize that we're doing these things and yet ultimately we're not the source of this. And our desire, our hope is that as people see the love that we exhibit toward them, their attention is not focused upon us, but it rightly recognizes, man, there's something different about this type of love. Where is this love coming from? And our hope, our desire is that their hearts are turned toward God. As we come to this stage in First John, we're looking at, at what love is. We see that love sources God, and we're hoping... As we look at this passage, we're hoping that people rightly understand that truth. And as they rightly understand that truth, that they engage in worship of God and come into right fellowship with Him. What we're hoping is as we engage in loving relationships with others, people look to the source of that love 
and come into relationship with the triune God. John, as we've talked about, is a person who's passionate about both love and truth. We've talked about this before, but so often uh, people will say, well, Christians, you need to decide, are you going to be excited about truth and doctrine, or are you going to be excited about love? And, you know, sometimes Christians are criticized for being too theological or too doctrinal, and we need to be more loving. And John would say that that distinction is a false distinction, it's a false choice. Imagine I were to, to go home and, and Whitney were to say, uh, Daniel, let's, let's sit down and talk. I say, okay, and we sit down on the couch and Whitney says, look, I just want to share with you how I'm feeling about some things and I want to tell you about some of my dreams and I want to tell you about the things that I like and, and don't like. I just, I just want you to, to know me and imagine I were to say, hey, sweetheart, um, I'm not into all that knowledge stuff. <laughs> I don't want a bunch of facts about you. I don't want a bunch of boring knowledge. I just want to love you. I'm not into Whitneyology. She'd rightly say, well, I don't think you understand what love is supposed to do here. And as we think about love in the church and love being exhibited by the church, what we see is that love is a witness. Love testifies not some vague generalities about feeling good about God or some general conceptions of some deity, but, but love, as rightly exercised in the church, r- love reveals things about the triune God, who he is, what he desires, and what he desires from his people. Because love comes from God, as we exercise love, people should grasp truths about who God is. What we're going to do this morning, then, is we're going to look at kind of a, a problem and then look at a solution to that problem. We're going to see that there's a problem of, of not knowing who God is, and we're going to see the solution is that God, as, we, as he exercises his love through us, reveals things about who he is. So let's look at the text here, and let's look at this problem and the solution. And the problem we see in verses 11 and 12, and the problem is, how can an invisible God be seen? How can an invisible God be seen? Let's, let's look at verse 11 and 12. Here's what John writes. He says, um, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another, and now no one has ever seen God. And what is John doing here? Well, verse 11 serves as a transition from what he's just been talking about to kind of a little bit of a new topic. Remember, he says here at the beginning of verse 11, if God so loved us. Now, how did God love us? Well, remember what he just told us, and we looked at this last week. Verse 9, he says, here's the love of God. Here's how the love of God can be known. We can't know the love of God just by kind of imagining it. It has to be manifested to us. He says, here's how the love of God became manifest to us. He says in verse 9, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. He says the same thing in verse 10. And this is love. Here's how you know love. Not that we loved God. In other words, we don't look to ourselves and our love of God to determine what love ultimately is and to define what love is. No, we look to God. And what does God do? It says, God loved the world. He loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And as we talked about last week, as we think about God's love, there is both action and intent. God acts in human history sacrificially, and there is intent behind his love, a desire to bring us into relationship with himself. There's action and intent. How does God love us? He loves us with action. He loves us with purpose. His actions are sacrificial actions for our eternal benefit. That's God's love toward us. 
So, John says here in verse 11, if that's how God loved us, if God so loved us, if he sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins, the, the one who turned away wrath for us by taking wrath on himself, if that's how God loved us, here's what we need to do. We also ought to love one another. And that word ought implies debt, implies obligation. John is, is saying that if God loved us in such a way, you and I have a, a divine relational obligation toward one another. Romans 13.8, Paul writes, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And many of us are, are people who say, man, I, I don't want to be in debt. I want to pay off any debt that I have. And I want to avoid getting into debt. And that's a very admirable, admirable sentiment. But here's the deal. There's one debt that you can never get out of. And that's the, the debt of obligation we have to be in loving relationships with each other. Colossians 3.13, we're to bear with one another. If one has a complaint against one another, against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. You ought to forgive. There's this, this debt of obligation that we have toward one another. Now, this relational debt of obligation is, is the same thing that Jesus describes in, in Matthew chapter 18. As, as he describes, you know, remember Peter comes to Jesus and he's, he's talking with, with Jesus about his relational obligation to his brother. He says, well, um, he, uh, Peter says, well, how often do I have to, if my brother sins against me, how often do I need to forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I, I say to you, not seven times, but 70 times seven. In other words, there's this unending relational obligation that we have to be in loving relationships with each other that never ends. Okay, That's what John is saying here in verse 11. We have a divine obligation to love each other, a debt can never be repaid. Now, what happens? What happens as we love? What happens as we love is that we deal with an obstacle that exists. Another type of relational obstacle that exists between us and God. Here's what John says as he begins verse 12. He says, no one has ever seen God. Literally what he's saying is there's not a, a single person, there, there's no person who, who lives now, who has ever lived, who ever will live, who's a, a human being uh, apart from God the Son. No one, no person has ever, and, and literally saying at, at any moment of time, there's been no, no moment in time in which any single person has ever beheld God, has ever seen God. Now, there have been moments of where God's glory has manifested and a person has been able to grasp it somewhat. So, for example, in Exodus thirty-three twenty, God says to Moses, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. He's talking about, you're gonna, I'm going to manifest my glory to you in such a way that you're going to taste just a, a little bit of, of who I am, but the, the fullness of my glory you'll never be able to see or comprehend. Why, why is this? Why is it true that no one has ever seen God. Well, 
God is invisible, right? What does John one eighteen say? John one eighteen, no one has ever seen God. John four twenty four says God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And so as we think about who God is, it's very important that we understand this to help us understand the obstacle that exists between us and God. God is an invisible spirit. Now, now what does that mean? Let me read you a couple things from uh, Wayne Grudem in his book on systematic theology as he defines what it means that God is an invisible spirit. Uh, Grudem writes, God's invisibility means that God's total essence and all of his spiritual being will never be able to be seen by us. Isn't that amazing? All of God's being, his spiritual being, will never be able to be seen by us. God's spirit, God's spirituality means that God exists, Grudem writes, as a being that is not made of any matter, has no parts or dimensions, and is unable to be perceived by our bodily senses, and is more excellent than any other kind of existence. I want you to think about what that means as, as John and, and Paul and the other biblical writers reveal this truth to us, that God is an invisible spirit. What it means is not just that God can't be seen by my eyes. It doesn't just mean that when John says no one has ever seen God at any time, it doesn't just mean that no one's ever been able to look at God fast enough to be able to, to catch him. It also doesn't mean that God is like one of those cartoon characters that becomes invisible. You, you know what happens when a cartoon character becomes invisible or in, in a movie or something? They become invisible and the other people around them can't see them, but the, they you know, inevitably like bump into some paint or something and they, they step in the paint and then you see their little footprints walking around or, or they put on some sunglasses and there's some sunglasses dancing around. They're not invisible. God isn't invisible in that sense. God is invisible in that not only can our eyes not perceive him, but, but we can't use any of our senses to perceive his being. We can't taste him. We can't touch him. He doesn't have lungs that, that make, that make uh, sounds that we could hear with our ears in, in that sense. I mean, we can't smell. There, there, there's no sense that we have that can be used to perceive who God is. He is an invisible spirit. John 5, 37, the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. John 6, 46, not that anyone has seen the Father except he is from God. He has seen the Father. God is, is completely other. And, and his, his invisibility, his, his spirit, the fact that he is spirit means that we can't perceive him with, with our senses. 1 Timothy 1.17, to the king of kings, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. 1 Timothy 6.16, he alone who has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. What does this mean? It means that God is a God who cannot be perceived with the things that we have within ourselves. It's a pretty profound problem if you think about it, right? I don't have the resources within myself to comprehend who God is. 
And it goes even deeper than that. You say, well, that sounds like kind of a big problem. It gets worse. He is not just other in the fact that we can't perceive him. Even though we're image bearers of God, he's other in the sense that we can't relate to him in terms of, of some of his attributes and characteristics. He's, he's completely other than we are. It's not human. Numbers twenty three nineteen. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Job nine thirty two. Job laments, God isn't a man as I am that I might answer him that we should come to trial together. The whole idea is ludicrous. He's, he's contending against guys like, well, I, you know, God exists in a, a different plane than I am, a different level. I can't say, God, why don't we go to court and talk about this? He's, he's other. Hosea, God says in Hosea eleven nine, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man the Holy One in your midst. So, God can't be perceived with our human senses. What does this mean? It means that you and I are always about half a step away from potentially committing idolatry. Let me read you what Moses writes in Deuteronomy chapter 4. In Deuteronomy 4, he talks about this idea that that God is invisible. That that God, when he appeared before the Israelites, didn't didn't physically appear, didn't see this, 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 this being. He said, you came near, you stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire and the heart of heaven wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. The Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form. There was only a voice. It says, therefore, this is verse thir- uh, I'm sorry, verse uh, 15 of Deuteronomy 4. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female. He says, look, God is spirit. You didn't see this being. And so what you need to be very careful of is this temptation you're going to have to try to represent God using physical forms. What is he talking about here? He's talking about the temptation towards idolatry, towards taking something that is not God and calling it God. He talks about the different ways in which you can do that. He says in verse 23, Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For Yahweh, the Lord, your God, is a consuming fire, a jealous God. How can an invisible God be seen? How can a God that our senses can't perceive be known? How can a God who is so completely other 
be comprehended by us. The temptation that you and I face is to fashion a God for ourselves. To take something that is not God and call it God. To take some of the features of God and, 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 and create this, this, this feature, that, this God that kind of looks like God, but then add some other features that, that we kind of want, and, and we create this, this, this idolatrous God. All of us are about half a step away from idolatry at any moment in our lives. So we have this problem. We have this problem. It's really twofold, right? How can an invisible God be seen? First of all, this is a problem because there are people in my life who I want to know God, right? Hopefully you can say, yeah, absolutely. There are people in your life who, who right now don't know God, and you say, I, I wish that they did know God. I, I have a, a, a parent or a sibling or a loved one or someone at, or, or someone at work or you know spouse my children my you know someone now how in the world am i going to be able to tell them about a god who can't be seen how are they going to be able to perceive and and know and and come into relationship with a god who can't be seen and known and perceived with our senses it's a huge problem that's one part of the problem the second part of the problem is, is maybe even more concerning. And it's what John's audience is struggling with as well. Remember, it's the whole theme of 1 John is marks of authentic fellowship, how I can know that I'm in fellowship with God. Here's the even more profound problem. If God is a God who can't be seen, if he's an invisible spirit, How can I know that I have perceived him rightly? John's audience is going through an existential crisis. They have accepted the gospel and, and they've become this, this church. They're, the church is there in Asia Minor. And, and now people with whom they're in relationship have left. They've followed these, these pre-Gnostic teachers that are teaching this, this secret knowledge. And, and here's this special relationship you can have with God if you give this, this, this super-duper secret super knowledge. And, and they're like, and the people who are staying are like, I, I don't know. How do, who's right? How do I know that I'm right? Here's the solution. Here's what John says about how we can perceive and know an invisible God. John says this, God's character, his attributes, and his deeds can be perceived through our love. Now this isn't the sum totality of all that scripture says about how the invisible God can be seen. And of course, um, our love apart from God's divine revelation is, is, is not able to, to be understood. And we're going to talk more about that in the, the coming weeks and maybe a little bit today. But, but, but here's what John is, is saying about it. Here's one, of the, here's one of the benefits of the love that God has given us. God's character, his attributes, 
His deeds can be perceived through our love. The invisible God can be seen and manifested to other people and to ourselves as God's people love. God is seen. The invisible God becomes visible through love. Let's look at what John says here. Last part of verse 12, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit and we have seen and testify. We testify, we bear witness that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. The Holy Spirit enables us to love and as he does so, he reveals aspects of God's divine nature in his work. Now, I want to walk through this progression of the text with you. Notice John, first of all, says this. Here's the first thing. John gives us a condition. If we love one another, if this is the case, if you and I exist in loving, sacrificial relationships with one another, and remember what we've already seen John say in 1 John, he said, okay, here's what love is. Love is sacrificially giving of yourself for the eternal benefit of another. Uh, um, by contrast, hatred is is, uh, self-service in your relationship and and self-centeredness. And the ultimate fruit of this selfishness is murder, is the the taking of a life for the benefit of your own. The polar opposite of that, what God calls us to, is love, giving of your life for another. Now, if we love one another, if we engage in this community of faith and loving relationships, that's the first thing that's the condition that all that john is about to say is based on it's a big if right (laughs) what does it mean to exist in a community of faith in which love is flourishing we've talked about it before but but just just think about that for a moment what does it mean it means that we exist in a community of faith that overlooks the fault of others, right? First Peter 4, 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. If this condition that John presents us is true, if we love one another, it means that we're going to be existing in a community of faith that, that isn't nitpicking over other people's faults, but there, our general attitude, our default reaction to, to those who are in our community of faith is going to be one of, of loving acceptance. Allowing the grace of God to, to cover the imperfections of one another. We're not going to be a, a community of faith that is biting and, and tearing each other apart. We're going to be a community of faith if we love one another. If, if, if we love one another, we're going to be a, a community of faith that's, that's moral, that's obedient in terms of our moral relationships. 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. We're going to be an obedient people. It means we're going to be, if we love one another, it means that we're going to be a community of faith that is ready to forgive. Ephesians 4, 2, with all humility and gentleness, Paul writes, with patience, bearing with one another in love and eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. If we're a community of faith that loves one another, it means that we're going to be a a community of extravagant givers. We're going to be a community that is, that is lavish in our love, manifested by our desire to give to one another and to give to the people who are, are in, in need and to give to the ministries of the church. There's going to be a lavishness to our giving. I love what John says in 3 John. 
I love the picture he paints here. I, I was reading this verse, this, this, this passage this last week, and I was thinking about our, our Methetes ministry, our ministry that's designed to prepare uh, people for ministry. And I think about our men who are in seminary right now and, 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 and how this, this passage kind of relates to that. In Third uh, John verse 5, John writes, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. In other words, the people he's writing to are, are giving to people that they don't know. But they testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. In other words, there, there are people in the church, because of their love for God, are, are generously giving to other people who are doing the ministry or, or engaged in this ministry so that they can do this ministry. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. And I, I think about some of you who have come to the, the elders of Bethany and said, Hey, I've heard about this guy preparing for ministry. I'd like to financially support him. And just, just hearing people have that heart is, is an amazing blessing because it means that you are, are loving, you're manifesting the love of God in your relationships with others. You're, you're exuding what God calls you to exude in terms of love, and you're becoming partakers of that work, right? We're loving the unworthy. We're, we're loving even our enemies. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 says, You've heard it was said, you shall, love your neighbors, you, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Can you see what love is doing there? As we love in a special way, it serves as a witness back to who God is. We are like our heavenly Father. Okay, but I'm getting ahead a little bit. Look, look at John's progression. So he says, if, if we love one another, in other words, if these relationships exist as they ought to live, here's the next part. Then he says, God abides in us. So as we see this love being exhibited, we realize God remains with us. He abides with us. He's, he's indwelling us. What did Mike and Jill sing earlier? It's your air in our lungs. So we pour out our praise for only you. As we exhibit this type of love, we recognize, okay, this love that's existing in this community of faith, this doesn't come from me. It comes from someone else. God is, God is remaining with us. God is abiding with us. Well, then what's the next thing? Well, the third thing we see here is he says, well, uh, if we love one another, number one, that means number two, God abides in us. And number three, it means his love is perfected in us. And that word perfected means that, that love's goal has been reached. His goal has been accomplished. There's a witness that occurs as we love one another, as, as we give to one another, as we care for one another, as we forgive one another, as we practice relational integrity with one another. As that exists within our community of faith, the love of God reaches its goal perfected john thirteen thirty five. by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another okay so there's these loving relationships as we see these loving relationships god's here 
God's goal for our love is being reached. And the next thing we see, because, because only God can be the source of this type of love, we realize, ah, the Spirit must be at work. Look what he writes. By this, this is verse 13, by this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. So as I look around and I see people engaging in loving relationships with one another, I recognize that that God is at work, that God is in our midst. I, I recognize that God's goal is being accomplished, and I say, ah, the Holy Spirit is here. The Holy Spirit is at work. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives us the ability to to love like this. Look at Romans chapter 5. We we see this idea. In Romans 5, Paul is is talking about the the hardships that we endure sometimes as well. He says in verse 1, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is verse 2 of Romans 5. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And, and more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. And then he says, Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts, through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. As I see the manifestation of love in my life toward you, and as I see the manifestation of love in your life toward me, as I see the manifestation of of love in your life toward her, and, and in her life I see the manifestation of love toward him, as I begin to see that, what does that tell me? It tells me, I know that can't come from them because love is from God. And so it causes me to look as I see these horizontal acts of love taking place. It causes me to see, even though I can't see God, I see the effects of God in your life. God becomes visible, his attributes, his character, his being, through the work of his spirit in your life through your love. God becomes visible able to be seen. What a tremendous opportunity, right? I mean, this idea of manifestation and, and vis- visibility has been all through this, this passage on love. And he begins by, by, by talking about um, love, where love comes from in verses 7 and 8, and, and in verse 9, how, how it was manifest, how love of God became visible. And, and now he's saying, look, God is invisible, but, but love can be seen, or God can be seen as his, his spirit works through his people. And now here's the other thing I want you to see, and, and here's kind of the fifth, last thing from this part of this passage, we think about God's character, attributes, and deeds being perceived through our love. Here's what I want you to grasp. The Spirit's work, this is, this is huge as we think about the invisible God becoming visible. The Spirit's work doesn't point people towards some vague abstract deity. The Spirit's work doesn't say there's some guy in the sky that lets people do nice things. It's not some vague generality of God 
some vague general concept of God that the Spirit is at work revealing. The Spirit, as we love, is testifying to the truth of the triune God. Do not miss this. I was reading an article this, this last week where, where someone was, was talking about love and how Christians need to stop being so, so um, I think they use the word bigoted. Stop, stop showing such bigotry and uh, hatred towards people of other religions. And this author was talking about how she goes to different places and she just loves everyone and she worships with everyone. She worships with Buddhists, she worships with Muslims. That's kind of the main focus was her worship that she does with Muslims and she worships with whoever. Is that what God means by love? Far from it. The love that we are to exercise towards others is to be complete. It is to be total. It is to be absolute, complete sacrifice of self. But catch this. As we exhibit that love, it doesn't come from us. It comes from God. And therefore, it doesn't testify to the truth that there's some just vague idea of God in the universe or some deity that exists. It points people, the type of love that you and I are to exhibit points people to a very specific conception of God. It points people to the triune God. Look at what John writes. This is this is so crucial to understand because if you don't understand this, you're going to misapply what love is and you're not going to see that the right effects of love in your life and you're going to be missing love's witness that John calls us to. He says this about the Spirit's work. He says, and we have seen, okay, there's that word, the idea of seeing again. So we can't see God. No one has ever seen God, but here's something we have seen. Verse 14, because of love, We have seen and we testify, we bear witness, we proclaim that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. That's love's witness. Love's witness is not just, hey, I want you to be happy. Hey, I want to do some nice things for you so that that you can... You can have a complete life. I want to get you a glass of water so you won't be thirsty anymore. Certainly, we, we do these acts of kindness. And, and what, 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 what love is this? Love is saying, okay, look, I'm going, to, I'm going to lay down my very life for you. I don't care what it takes. I'm going to do whatever I can for your good and your eternal benefit. And the reason I'm doing this, the reason I'm laying down my life for my spouse, the reason that I'm laying down my life for my brothers and sisters in Christ, the reason that I'm laying down my life for the people in my community by, by giving to them and by sacrificially caring for them is because I have a love that doesn't come from myself. I have a love that comes from God. And the way that I understand that love, the way I've been able to, to 
perceive what that love is, is because his son has laid down his life for me to be the propitiation for my sins. And now, because I understand what love is, I can exercise that love to you. And as I exercise that love to you, I am not just doing nice things so you cannot be thirsty anymore, so you cannot be hungry anymore, so you can self-actualize. I am doing these things so that you can understand God's character, his attributes, his deeds. That's love's witness. How can an invisible God become manifest, become seen? One of the ways John tells us the invisible God can be seen, one of the ways that the people I love can come into relationship with God and understand His love is as I exercise love. One of the ways that I can be confident that I am in fellowship with God is as I see love being manifest in my life and say this cannot come from anyone but the Spirit. As people talk to you about the things that you do in your life, I hope you get a lot of thank yous. I hope people see you and and thank you for what you're doing for me. Thank you for how you're loving me. Thank you for how you're carrying me. And I hope that as, as you receive those thank yous, as you exercise this love that comes not from within, from within, you say, you know what? Let me point you back to Jesus. <laughs> Let me show you how my actions are not from my own self, but are the fruit of a heart that's been transformed by the gospel as I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation and received his, his love and forgiveness. That's love's witness by God's grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love poured out within us and the opportunity we have because of your love to to love others. We pray that we'd be faithful to manifest that in in the relationships that you've, you've placed in our lives. We pray this not for our own glory, but for your glory, for your joy being manifest in our lives. We thank you for that. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.